The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Well, there's a, <clears throat> an, an article that's made its rounds for discussion in the Christian interwebs and podcast circuit. It's actually, it actually came out last summer. It's written by Michael Graham and Skylar Flowers, and it's published by Mere Orthodoxy. It's called The Six-Way Fracturing of Evangelicalism. Maybe some of you saw this, maybe some of you maybe probably did not. Um, and it's a helpful article. I'm not going to go into all the details. Um, I'll, maybe I'll post a link to it tomorrow. But in it, Flowers brings in topics of social justice and COVID and politics, all right, issues that have become you know, pretty divisive in the church in the last couple of years. And then he details six camps that he sees evangelicalism fracturing into essentially as the result of these divisive issues. Um, on one far extreme, we'll call it the far right, he names neo-fundamentalist evangelicals, okay, those who have deep concerns about both political and theological liberalism, who perhaps shy away from um, or prefer simply to speak prophetically at issues, warning Christians of their involvements with those issues. And on the other far extreme, and let's call it the far left, um, he names de-churched and deconverted people who have left the church as well as Orthodox Christianity, left it behind in pursuit of um, their social involvements. All right, so, and he actually has four, four and a half categories in between those two extremes, and it's somewhat helpful for diagnosis, for um, identification, and yet the article comes up short of really aiming toward a solution to the fracturing. And as I've read that and reflected on it, prayed over it, and even contemplated a little bit, like how does that intersect with some of the stuff that we've experienced as a church over the last two years, I've come to the conclusion that at the heart of the fracturing is how we answer the question, what does the church do? Like what, what's the mission of the church? It seems to be that that's what's at the root of the fracturing. Is the church just supposed to preach the gospel? Right? Um, is the church supposed to be the front lines of what some would call social justice, leading the rallies, leading the marches? Is one of those to be primary over the other? Ought one or the other get priority over the other in certain times, in, in certain seasons? Is one more expendable than the other? Or how do we do both, perhaps? Right? What does the church do? See? It's actually a deceptively complex and potentially divisive question. And what, what I want us to see this morning is that you know, we're not left scratching our heads and hoping for the fracturing to stop. <laughs> uh, we have the Bible. And, and believe it or not, the Bible is actually really helpful in clarifying this question. What's the mission of the church? What does the church do? And it's important that we open the Bible if we're going to ask and answer this question, so that we don't answer the question with what we want to do, but rather with what God wants us to do. So what does the church do? To answer that question this morning, we're going to look at these two passages that Sarah just read. They're both in the Gospel of Matthew, okay? Both of these will probably be familiar to you, but we don't often look at them together. Two passages are famously known as the Great Commission, Matthew 28, and the Great Commandment, Matthew 22. But before we look at these two passages, there's, there's one more thing that I kind of want to set on the table a little bit for us this morning to help us in this, and that's the, it's the distinction of what Christians over the years have called the, the church as an institution 
and the church as an organism. As an institution, okay, as, as an organization of Christians, as the called out together, like we've been talking about, and assembled into the entity of a local church, organized under biblical leadership and, and all the rest, we can and must do some things that individual Christians cannot and should not do. For example, an individual Christian cannot excommunicate someone from the church, Okay? Um, But the local church is commanded to do so in certain certain circumstances. Jesus talks about it in Matthew 18. Paul gives us an example of it in 1 Corinthians 5. Um, Additionally, an individual Christian isn't to take the Lord's Supper on his own. That's an activity that we're instructed to do as the church. When we come together, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, conversely, when we think of the church as an organism, or maybe as the the scattered church, there are things that we are commanded to do as individuals that the church as an institution cannot do. Husbands, love your wives, (laughs) all right? Uh, The institution isn't going to do that, okay? Uh, The church isn't going to love your wife for you men. No, that's something as married men um, that you're to carry out. And so there's a difference I want us to see between the individual Christian, individual Christians, The church is an organism, sent and scattered, and the local church is an entity, the church as an institution, called out and gathered. We can't just say that what we see commanded of the church as an organism is also commanded of the church as an institution, and vice versa. There's a distinction, and that distinction is critical. But with that table set, let's look first at the Great Commission, then the Great Commandment, all right? Then we'll talk about the two tendencies that we have with respect to these. Okay, go ahead and open up your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Matthew 28. Okay, it's page uh, <clears throat> 835 in the Pew Bible. If you, if you don't have a, a copy of God's Word, maybe just take that home with you. But Matthew 28 begins with talking about the resurrection, right? This is the end of the account of Jesus' life according to Matthew. So Jesus has died on the cross, in our place, for our sins, praise God. He's been in the grave for three days now. We've read of his resurrection early in chapter 28 and is appearing to the disciples, uh, the very earliest Christians. And, And beginning in Matthew 28, verse 16, we have this passage that just about every version of the Bible labels the Great Commission, right? And it's called that because this is Jesus giving these very early Christians a mission, He's telling us what to do. And it's, it's not just called a, a mission. It's not the great mission. It's the great co-mission because he's going to be at work right alongside us. Let's, let's read it again here. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 16. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, let's stop right there and look at how this starts. (laughs) Uh, Before Jesus tells them what to do in verse 19, he reassures them of the good news, doesn't he? In verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. That's good news, friends. It means Jesus is in control of everything, (laughs) Which means we don't have to be. We don't have to be. You can relax in Jesus because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. Even when evangelicalism seems to be fracturing, 
We can rest in the green pastures and still waters of Jesus' sovereign rule and his indescribable love. We don't have to freak out. He's not freaking out. All authority in heaven and on earth reminds us who's really in control around here. It also reminds us that Jesus doesn't send out his church to conquer. He sends us out because he's already conquered. We go because he reigns. We're not, we're not tasked right, with ushering in the kingdom. It's already come. It's not so much something that we build, it's something that we receive and proclaim. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed, Jesus says in Matthew 24, throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. He doesn't say this gospel of the kingdom will be built by you throughout all the whole world, and then the end will come. Proclaimed. But now also, we, we, you know, we don't just... We don't just relax in Jesus. We must pay attention to Jesus and what he's about to say and obey Jesus because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, including his authority over us. Verse 19. Go, therefore. All right, in light of the fact that all authority has been given to him, here's our marching orders. Go on. Get after it. Get after what? Well, Making disciples, which means converts, new followers of Jesus, making them. Sharing the gospel and seeing people go all in with Jesus, them understanding the forgiveness of their sins, coming into a relationship with Jesus, trusting in him for salvation, following after him now, surrendering and submitting their lives to him now, learning from him now, and we're to make these disciples of all nations, right? which means all peoples everywhere to the far reaches of the world and the near reaches of next door, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, marking them as belonging to the, the body of Christ, walking them into a, a local body of Christ, teaching them, teaching them to observe all that he has commanded us, there's, there's, there's commands that, that Jesus has, that God has in his words. And, and as the church, one of our jobs is to, to teach those commands, to understand those commands, to, to submit to those commands and do those commands. Teaching them to observe all that he has commanded, obeying them, walking with people towards maturity, seeing them grow as we grow ourselves with increasing obedience to his teaching, seeing more and more of our lives come into alignment with his will, in his way, observing and obeying all that he has commanded, including the command right here to make more disciples. In other words, we are to be disciples that make disciples that make more disciples that make more disciples. And you can, you can keep doing that until tomorrow if you want, right? And we see here at the end that this isn't just a command that's given to the 11 disciples on top of a mountain. This commission wasn't fulfilled by the apostles. No, Jesus says this work is going to continue until the end of the age. That's how long he promised to be with us. He's going to be with us the whole time, making it possible. As Lord of the church, Jesus expects us to take up our turn in the commission 
until our time here is up or until he returns at the end of the age, whichever comes first, right? Going, making disciples, baptizing them, teaching them. This is what we're to do as the church. You know, if you read on into the book of Acts, right, what we see is this in action. We see this as the mission that the church carried out. In Acts 2, we see them gathered together, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread. We see churches being planted and built up, churches that that get after it with making disciples and baptizing new converts and teaching them, seeing them grow and mature as followers of Jesus. We see Paul being sent out. Right? Well, while great numbers of others stayed behind, but we see Paul being sent out on his first missionary journey and his second missionary journey and his third missionary journey, planting more churches. And then what's he do? He comes back through all these towns and all these churches that he planted and he strengthens them, appoints elders in the churches. He goes on, he writes letters to these established churches, encouraging them in the work of the Great Commission, exhorting them, correcting them, encouraging them, strengthening them, making disciples that make more disciples, that make more disciples, that plant churches, that plant more churches, that plant more churches in Jerusalem, in Judea, in all Samaria, to the ends of the earth, right? This is the Great Commission, and it's been rolling ever since. Judaism didn't stop it. Judaism didn't prevail against it. Rome didn't either. Church conflicts over the years haven't prevailed against it, Not even some of the big ones, like the great schism in the 11th century or the Protestant Reformation in the 16th. Heresies in the church haven't prevailed against it. Denominational fracturing hasn't prevailed against it. Early 20th century theological liberalism hasn't prevailed against it. Natural disasters, famines, multiple pandemics, two world wars. Listen, the gates of hell haven't prevailed against it. And they never will. Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. And he is with us in this commission. And this is our mission as the church. Making disciples. Baptizing, teaching, maturing. Making more disciples. Planting more churches. Preaching the gospel. Gathering the church. Worshiping together. Growing together. Devoting ourselves to the word and fellowship and breaking the bread, right? Gathering in homes and here together as a corporate body. Being shaped and formed by God's word and each other in the context of a worshiping community that Jesus loves. Like This is the ecclesia that he died for. Caring for one another, speaking truth to one another, building one another up in maturity, stirring one another up to love and good works. This is our mission as the church, as an institution. None of us can do this on our own. We were never meant to. It's churches that carry out the Great Commission to make disciples, that make more disciples, that plant churches, that plant more churches. And we're not free to decide whether we want to do that or not. Our Lord Jesus has commanded us to. And all authority belongs to him. Now, half of the room right now um, is thinking, yes and amen. And perhaps the other half of the room right now is thinking, yeah, but, right? Yeah, but what about caring for the poor? 
Uh, What about doing justice and loving kindness? What about caring for the least of these and fighting for equality and restraining violence and, and, and advocating for the less fortunate, serving and being a blessing to those who are far from God? Well, the Bible certainly isn't silent on any of that, is it? No, in fact, Jesus addresses it quite clearly in the other famous passage that we're going to look at this morning, the Great Commandment. Go ahead and turn backwards in your, in your Bibles a few pages to Matthew chapter 22. We're looking at verse 34 and following there. And the context here is, uh, you know, one of these Pharisees, a, a lawyer that, that we're told about, uh, posed a question to Jesus in order to test him. It's a setup, right? And he asks, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replies, doesn't he? Matthew 22, verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, notice here, the lawyer asks, which is the greatest commandment? Trying to test Jesus. Jesus replies with two, which shuts the lawyer up, right? And and, and Mark, in his account, even brings it back to one, saying there's no greater commandment, singular, than these. Meaning, they're absolutely interconnected. Okay, in fact, we would say as Christians, we're unable to do one without the other. But let's focus here for a second. Let's focus on the second half here. Love your neighbor as yourself. You might know where this comes from. Okay, it it comes straight out of the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus 19. If you've read Leviticus 19 lately, you'll know it actually has quite a bit to say about neighbor love. Quite a bit to say about it. Um, For example, not reaping your harvest all the way to the edge of your field, but leaving some for the poor and the sojourner, caring for the poor. Um, You shall not steal. It's right in there, Leviticus 19. Um, No lying or dealing falsely with, with one another. You shall not oppress one another is, is right in there. Don't don't oppress your neighbor or rob him or fail to pay him, it says. You shall do no injustice in court or be partial to the poor or defer to the great. No slandering is in there. No hate is in there. It's all spelled out and then it's summed up in Leviticus 19, 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus, in Matthew 22 is drawing here from this Old Testament law, a particular part of the Old Testament law that codifies, in a way, what we might also call natural law. Here's what I mean by natural law. Natural law is is an eternal moral law revealed to all people through human nature. It's something that is known by reason. It's a a universal moral law of human nature and living well. Part of what Leviticus 19 is doing is codifying this. Paul appeals to this in Romans 2 when in speaking speaking of the non-Christian Gentiles, he says they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. In other words, natural law is an innate sense of right or wrong that God, our creator, puts in all of us, Christian or not. Jew or Gentile alike, in the context of Romans 2, 
Those who have the formal Old Testament law and those who merely have natural law alike won't have an excuse on the day of judgment. That's Paul's argument in Romans 2. All people everywhere are commanded to love our neighbor as ourself. We all have an innate sense of it. It's like a Geico commercial, you know? 15% can save you, or 15 minutes can save you 15% on car insurance. Everybody knows that, right? That's natural law. Everybody knows it. Everybody knows it. Loving our neighbor as ourselves. It's not just a nice idea that Jesus came up with, you know, to, uh, so we could all agree on something. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, I guess hold hands over and sing We Are the World together. No, God put this in us. He put it in all of us. He created us. Every single one of us. He created every single human being on the face of the earth, and he created us with value, worth, dignity, and regard. Everyone, everywhere, is worthy of being loved by their neighbor because everyone, everywhere, is created in the image of God. You don't have to be a Christian to agree that we shouldn't oppress one another. That's not distinctively Christian. You don't have to be a Christian to agree that we shouldn't commit acts of injustice towards one another or steal from one another or murder one another or care for the poor or labor for the public restraint of violence or evil. You don't have to be a Christian to know that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. Everyone knows that. Some of us you know, repress it. That's what Paul's getting at again in Romans 2. We, we put that down. We kind of try to avoid it. But you don't have to go to church or be a part of a church to pursue this. And yet, that doesn't lessen for a nanosecond that as Christians, we're absolutely commanded to do it. We're commanded, you and I, to neighbor love. It's the great commandment. Jesus says so. He didn't come to abolish the law. He's the one who shows us perfect neighbor love. He's the one who commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Should we care for the poor? Yes. Should we advocate for and do justice? Yes. Should we care for those and serve those who are around us? Yes. After all, Jesus tells us who our neighbor is in the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's anyone close to us in need. But I want to make the point that this is a commandment given to all people everywhere. It's not uniquely given, like the Great Commission, to the church as an institution. It is, however, given to all of us as those created in the image of God, including us Christians, as the church, as an organism. We might summarize things this way for us as Christians, okay? Here's a table for you. Hopefully you can read that. But the Great Commission is about making and maturing disciples, making and maturing them. The great commandment is about unleashing disciples, living as disciples. The great commission is about spreading the good news of the good work that Jesus has done for us. The great commandment, to use Paul's words from Ephesians 2, is about us doing the good works that have been prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. The great commission is for us as a church, as an institution. The great commandment 
It's for the church and really for all humanity as an organism. It's not either or for us as Christians. It's both and. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus and he's given us the great commission. Integral to the great commission is us learning to deserve all that he commanded, including the great commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves. But the distinction... Or the, the, the distinction between understanding that the great commission is for the church as an institution and that the great commandment is for the church as an organism is really important as we turn now to two tendencies that we have with respect to the great commission and the great commandment. Tendency number one. Tendency number one is to separate one from the other. To separate them. All right, and this happens in, in both directions. For example, when divisive issues come up in our culture, as they do, like clockwork in an election year, if our response is, just preach the gospel, that impulse is likely coming from a good place, a heart influenced by the Great Commission, and yet it misses that we are saved for good works. And of course, we're not saved by our good works. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. But as those who are saved by grace through faith in Jesus, there's good works for us to do. Again, Ephesians 2.10, Jesus prepared them for us. So we pray how to walk in them. Or as Martin Luther has said, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. But sometimes in this tendency to separate the great commission from the great commandment, we act as if our calling in Christ has no connection with being responsible stewards or citizens of the world. It leads to all kinds of outrage and nicknames like the frozen chosen. Right? But it happens the other way too. Separating the great commandment from the great commission. Instead of just preach the gospel, this way says, deeds not creeds. Right? Deeds not creeds. And again, there's an impulse here, a good impulse that is influenced by the great commandment, but it can leave the great commission behind. It might say things like, let's call off our worship gathering and go march at the protests. Friends, these are the two extremes in the article at the beginning about fracturing. And there are gradients and variations in between the extremes as well, but neither is healthy, neither is comprehensively biblical. Separating the great commission from the great commandment makes the church anemic and ineffectual in the world. While separating the great commandment from the great commission has the proclivity and, and historically the precedent to lose the gospel and Orthodox Christianity altogether. Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about the, the second half of this. Uh, Lloyd-Jones was a, a British pastor and preacher in London. Uh, in 1969, he was invited to give a series of lectures here in the States at Westminster Theological Seminary on preaching. Okay, and this was a, a time where, broadly speaking, church involvement was declining, or kind of at the tail end, really, of declining, really rapidly in England. Tim Keller in New York City has always said, hey, if you want to see what's going to happen in New York City, look what happened in London 20 years ago. And I've always kind of thought, if you want to see what's going to happen in the Midwest, look what happened in New York City 20 years ago, All right? What Lloyd-Jones warned was that the reason for church decline in England back then was an overemphasis on politics and social causes at the expense of preaching the word. 1969, he said that. 
So the biblical gospel was being replaced, he said, with a social gospel. We've seen this in the States then too. And the business of the church became about political and social reform. We could say they separated the great commandment from the great commission. But what happened, Lloyd-Jones says, is eventually folks realized that all that could really be done through political agencies. In fact, they did it better. They did it better. And so they left the churches and never returned, and they got their Sunday mornings back. When we separate the great commandment from the great commission, see, instead of being a city on the hill, the church becomes just another face in the crowd. Indistinct, unrecognizable, and eventually superfluous. Once the blending is complete, the church disappears altogether. And if the church disappears altogether, who's left to make immature disciples of Jesus? What's the solution? Well, it's to hold on to both. The, the, the Great Commission and the Great Commandment, not separating them one from the other. Now, we also have to fight, secondly, against the tendency to conflate the two. One way that we conflate the two is to make everything about evangelism. Everything. As if the Great Commission were the Great Commandment. And when we do this, we serve others and do good essentially out of a pretense to share the gospel. It's gospel foreplay. It's saying, let's do these good things and let's serve in these good ways so that, so that this person or these people may be more inclined to receive the gospel. Now, I'm not saying that that's always a bad thing, okay? As Christians, we deal in the currency of eternity, all right? And, and, and so we want people to receive the gospel. That is always the greatest and eternal need. And sometimes meeting physical needs needs to happen before we can address spiritual needs. But if we conflate the Great Commission with the Great Commandment, we can sometimes miss the truth that your neighbor, your neighbor is worthy of being loved, not merely as a pretense for evangelism, but merely because they were created in the image of God. And whether they ever come to know Jesus in a saving way or not, they are worthy and you are commanded to love them as you love yourself. Another way that we conflate the two is when we make everything the mission of the church as an institution. As if the great commandment were the great commission. You see this when we start to hear things or say things like, what's the church going to do about fill in the blank? Or, or how are we working on combating fill in the blank, social issue? Listen, the, the, the church as an institution isn't going to solve all the world's problems. It's just not. Now it can address sin when it's in her midst and call for repentance and seek to be purified as the church, but the church as an institution isn't going to eradicate, for example, racism in the world. The church as an institution isn't going to solve the world's gender confusion problem. 
It's not going to bring an end to sex trafficking or abortion or homelessness. The church is an organism very well may. But we mustn't conflate the Great Commission with the Great Commandment here, acting as if the Great Commandment were the Great Commission. And that doesn't mean that we shy away from addressing these issues from Scripture. Teaching, training, equipping the saints to think biblically about these issues and and rid sin from our own lives that perhaps it pertains to these issues, including the sin of complacency at times. But sometimes... When we levy these causes onto the church as an institution, we're actually deflecting from the calling God has put on our individual lives to fulfill the great commandment. Listen, God has put unique burdens and causes and issues on each one of us according to your experiences in life, your passions, your relationships and shaping influences, and his will. Braden here has a, a passion and a, and a drive to, to be involved with combating sex trafficking. Brian and Beth have a, a drive and they've given a good chunk of their life to loving and serving and sharing the gospel with international students. There may be others in the room who feel strongly about immigration and refugee resettlement. Or the homeless. Or politics. Another may feel passionate about their kid's school. Or their neighborhood. Or racial inequality that they see right around them, like in their actual life. Our neighbor love passions and burdens are as legion and as diverse as we are. And there's no end to the list, is there? Alan Noble has written a wonderful book called You Are Not Your Own. And in it, he addresses this hard but realistic truth that we can't solve every problem in the world. Listen to what he says. He says, the modern person is aware of more suffering and injustice than a person living at any other time in history. Just think about that first sentence for a little bit. We are more aware of suffering and injustice than a person living at any other time in history. That doesn't mean that there's more suffering. In fact, according to some measures like violence and poverty, there's actually less suffering and injustice in the world than ever before, but we are exposed to all of it. Every horrific murder, rape, or kidnapping is national news, along with natural disasters, political corruption, famines, civil wars, bigotry, pandemics, and so on. And then he says, I am aware of far more than I can ever do anything about. That's a crushing weight, isn't it? And because of that, Noble says, there's always far more to do. And we can begin to think that it's our job as individuals or the church's job as an institution to do it all. Somebody's got to do something about it. But the church as an institution can't do it all any more than you as an individual can do it all. It's not equipped to do it all. We're not subject matter experts on it all. We don't have... Unlimited resources or time to to do it all, nor is it the leaders of the church's primary responsibility before the Lord. The primary responsibility is prayer and ministry of the word, equipping the saints for the work of ministry. 
And yet you know it and I know it. It's not uncommon for people, especially on social media, and you've got friends, you've got family doing this to you, you know, to insist that you must care about everything and that the church must do something about everything and you're condemned if you don't. What's the solution? Well, it's not to fracture into six different versions of evangelicalism. It's to hold the Great Commission and the Great Commandment in tandem. Understanding that the church as an institution is to be primarily about making and maturing disciples. And conversely seeing that as the church is an organism, we each have a unique and special callings on our lives to be involved in a myriad of things and causes and issues to the extent that God has equipped and positioned us to be according to our station and lot in life. In other words, our involvements as the church, as an organism, in various causes and concerns will be as unique and varied as we are. Sometimes there might be several of us that are passionate, gifted, called to a certain area. That's great. The world needs that. You might even need to go start a nonprofit for it. Other times, you may partner with existing Christian organizations that already exist or a non-Christian organization motivated by natural law to love others around you. The world needs all of that. It needs all of us. Sometimes we might take something up as a, a church, like volunteering or partnering with a local organization to help train our body, right, for how to be involved in the work of serving others. But in all of that, we must realize that our calling as the church, as an institution, isn't to transform the world. That's Jesus' job. We're called as his disciples to make, mature, and unleash missionary disciples who live with gospel faithfulness and neighbor love to the glory of God. Michael Horton is a contemporary theologian who's done a lot of thinking and, and writing actually on the difference between and the holding in tandem of the Great Commission and, and the Great Commandment. But listen, listen to how he puts this. He says it's actually a great relief, a great relief to learn that we are not called to redeem the world or transform it. We are freed up to proclaim the gospel when we know that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And we're actually liberated to love and serve our neighbors when we know that God will transform the kingdoms of this age when Christ returns to earth, unburdened by the impossible demands of redeeming and transforming the world, we are liberated to fulfill the great commission and the great commandment in concrete, specific, and usually unnoticed acts towards concrete and specific neighbors each day. In other words, Boring old neighbor love. It's a lot harder than posting something on, on the socials. Doesn't look sexy on Instagram. Doesn't get retweeted. Doesn't hunger for likes on Facebook. And it won't make you famous, fulfilling a need in you for self-glory so that you know you matter in the world. but rather focuses on living as a missionary disciple with gospel faithfulness right where he has you, 
to the glory of God. Some of you will know the story of John Newton and William Wilberforce. Uh, John Newton was a slave trader before he was a Christian. And he became a Christian, he turns into this Anglican pastor. He's got this friendship with William Wilberforce, who was a politician. When Wilberforce comes to know Christ, he starts thinking about going into full-time ministry like Newton. But Newton, as his pastor, in meeting with him on a regular basis, discipling him, discourages it. He says, Wilberforce, don't go into full-time ministry in the church. We need you in politics. If you know the story, Wilberforce went on to be a leading voice and figure of the abolition of slave trade in Britain. But listen, there's no Wilberforce without Newton. Which is another way to say there's no abolition of slave trade in Britain without the church. The church as an institution makes, matures, and unleashes people like Wilberforce shapes them by the word and teaches them to obey all that Jesus commanded. And God then used Wilberforce to play an instrumental part in something very significant and very world-changing. That's an extreme example. Very extreme example. And God works in extreme and significant ways sometimes. But way more often, he works in very ordinary ways through very ordinary people like most of us. Boring old acts of neighbor love. What does the church do? Well, as an institution, we make, mature, and unleash missionary disciples, the Great Commission. As an organism, we live with gospel faithfulness to the glory of God, loving our neighbor as ourself. Great commandment. We don't separate one from the other, and we don't conflate the two. They're not in competition. We're to be about both, but uniquely about both. One is an institution, one is an organism. And you're a part of both, in case you were wondering. Each of us and all of us together are commanded to make disciples of all nations and love our neighbor as ourselves. Let's pray and give our lives to that. Uh, Father, we come to you now, having heard from your word, and we ask, Lord, that you would heal the divisions in your church. And we pray that you would guard us from division as a church. May we hold both the Great Commission and the Great Commandment powerfully together, submitting our lives to you and your word. And as we do so, and, and, and as we do good and, and love and serve our neighbor, anyone close to us in need, would you remind us and show through us to the world around us that there is something even better than human flourishing. There is something even worse than death. And Lord, we pray now 
for your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.